Hey guys, I'm Emily. I'm Andy. And welcome to Unnatural. Yeah, Emily, I'm excited for this one because you mentioned this to me right from the get-go. Before we even started recording, we wanted to kind of shed light on a lot of cases during this month, Pride Month. Yeah, so we're doing a special Pride episode this week. And the first thing that I want to say is this episode is not intended to offend anyone in the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, we decided to do this episode, especially after everything that's been happening with the Black Lives Matter movements and civil rights justice in general around the world. So we figured that there would be no better time than the present to lend our voices in the fight of equality for all. Yeah, and it just made me think earlier today when I knew that we were going to be doing this podcast. I remember as a kid, I don't know about you, but in history class learning about the civil rights era and things that were going on in that time, never heard about any LGBTQ plus cases at all during that time because it was still kind of taboo. And people are finally starting to shed light on that these days. Yeah, and I think that's super great. Um, for this episode, we're also going to link a couple of our favorite nonprofits to support um, in the description of this podcast. So what do you say? Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. talking about the Stonewall riots. What do you know about that, Andy? Not much. And in fact, I had only just heard of them a couple years ago. I just happened to be listening to some sort of uh, broadcast on NPR radio. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about the history of the Stonewall riots. And I'm thinking to myself, why have I not heard about this before? This is a seminal moment in the gay rights community. And it didn't get a whole lot of coverage until very recently, nationally anyway. Yeah, for sure. Um, a little history here. Uh, the first documented gay rights organization in the United States was actually founded in 1924 by a guy named wow. Henry Gerber, and it was called the Society for Human Rights. But Man. being the 20s, it was shut down real quick by police, but they did manage to publish a handful of newsletters called um, Friends and Freedom beforehand. And the first lesbian rights organization was formed in San Francisco in September of 1955, and that was called the Daughters of Bilitis. Wow. And to think about how long ago that was in the grand scheme of things, I mean, think about how... Get how much gays and lesbians and trans people have to overcome these days. This was a hundred years ago when this started. Now, in the 50s and 60s, being openly gay, lesbian, queer, whatever was not very common. And in fact, I didn't know this until I started re like really researching this, but the FBI had a list of known homosexual people places of business, like gay bars, etc. And this this is the part that absolutely blew my mind. 
the post office, Andy, the post office kept note of mail that was going back and forth with quote-unquote gay paraphernalia. Really? So they would keep track of the addresses. You're kidding me. Yeah. And I don't, I couldn't find what quote-unquote gay paraphernalia meant. I'm not sure like what that means at all. But yeah, they were keeping track of the addresses and that's Seems really illegal to me, but also this is the 50s and 60s and laws have changed a lot since then. But still, that even for the 50s and 60s, to me, that seems super illegal. Very few places accepted gay people in these days. And the ones that did were generally run, owned by, or in other words, related to organized crime families, like the mafia. Now, At the time the Stonewall Inn riots happened, the Stonewall Inn was owned by the mafia, specifically the Genovese crime family. And this was in New York City, right? Yes. Yep. And police often raided known gay bars in the 60s. But then in 1966, an organization dedicated to gay rights held a SIP Inn, Mm -hmm. kind of like a sit-in. But members of the organization went to bars and taverns around the area and they like walked in and they were like, yo, what's up? I'm gay. And they were basically taunting the bartenders or any of the staff to kick them out. Mm -hmm. And if they did, they would turn around and sue them because at this point in time, it like laws were changed that um, like gay people basically had the right to be served yeah. in a straight bar. But still, holy shit, that took a lot of courage back then. Absolutely. So once the Commission of Human Rights ruled that gay people had the right to be served in bars, a lot of the police raids diminished. They weren't happening as often. The crime family held power over most of the gay bars in Greenwich Village, and they did purchase the Stonewall Inn, which was known as a straight bar at the time. So they flipped it and marketed it as a gay bar when they eventually reopened. Hmm. Now, this place was technically registered as a bottle bar, which is essentially bring your own bottle. So they didn't have to have a liquor license. And the family also had a lot of the cops in their pockets. So Hmm. they tended to leave the bar alone, which was handy for them because most of what I've read about the Stonewall Inn made it seem like this wasn't the best place aesthetically. Meaning the Hmm. owners definitely cut corners wherever they could when it came to money. Like there was no fire exit there. You know, when you go to a bar and they have the little, the little sink with the jets that you wash the cups in that they didn't have one of those. They, yeah, these days OSHA would be all over that. Right. The the <laughs> the toilets in the bathroom were either oh, overflowing God. or didn't work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Although I, I would say, you know, in my younger days, I don't know about you, but in my twenties, I went to some bars and clubs that uh man, even even when I was in there, I'm like, how is this place not shut down? Yeah, there was this one club that I went to that had like a like a like a unisex bathroom yeah and it was disgusting yeah Dis- i think 
I think I went outside and like hid in a bush. Oh, th- yeah. For <laughs> and it's easier for guys. I I would do that quite often <laughs> back then. I'm looking at you, Twin Cities. Okay, moving on. Anyhow, the Stonewall Inn had a decent, rich clientele, and hmm. those closeted rich patrons were often blackmailed in order to not be outed. Mm. So were these like rich people who maybe were married and they were using that as a cover, you think, or? I probably, yeah. Back then that happened quite often. Yeah, absolutely. But this place was still pretty dang popular. It would host drag shows. It also kind of acted as a shelter for homeless and runaway gay youths. Oh, cool. Which these kids were often um, panhandling or pickpocketing or stealing in general to be able to pay for the cover fee to get inside. And then they would just stay there. Mm. At least they had somewhere to be and somewhere to stay. Yeah. And it was the only gay bar around that allowed dancing hmm. which i found interesting because of laws back then or it was I frowned so. upon probably both yeah. i i'm not 100 percent sure raids were you know still pretty common but the cops that were in the mafia's pocket would usually tip the owners off beforehand but on the morning of June 28th, 1969, the police raided the Stonewall Inn and didn't tip anyone off about it. Now, 13 people were arrested, and this actually like made my blood kind of start to boil, and anyone who was suspected of cross-dressing, which was like illegal at the time, were taken yeah. to the bathroom by a female officer told to take off their clothes so the officer could confirm their gender or their sex, basically. Isn't that cool? Can you imagine? I mean, A, it's so demeaning. Yeah. And you just feel violated by something like that. Yeah, for sure. Now, people were sick of the never-ending harassment by the police, so people who were in the bar that weren't arrested, people who lived in the neighborhood started to gather outside despite being told to leave. Now everybody everybody is starting to get angry. The police are getting aggressive with the people who gathered, so much so to the point that a lesbian woman was hit on the head and forced into the back of a police van by the oh. officers. And as they're trying to get her in the van, she's yelling at the crowd like, "Hey, you guys, do something, take action, any something, anything. Yeah. And at this point, the crowd starts throwing stuff at police. They were throwing coins. They were throwing bottles. They were throwing rocks, etc. Whatever and they could within, find. Yeah, whatever they could find. And within minutes, the full-blown riot starts. Mm. Sound familiar? Yeah, sounds a, a little bit like what has happened in the last few years here. Yeah. Now there's hundreds of people, cops, some of the people who were arrested, and a journalist for the Village Voice had barricaded themselves inside the inn because it's just, it's chaos outside. Yeah. And the mob is trying to break inside. They, I think they got in and were pushed back out several times, and it was at that point that they decided to set the place on fire. Wow. As one does during a riot. Can you imagine the situation that's going on right then? 
I mean, just pure chaos and anarchy. And nobody knows where to go, where they're safe, and who to trust. You certainly can't trust law enforcement right then. Now, the fire department shows up, the riot squad arrives, and they were able to stop the fire from getting too serious or spreading. And all of the people that were inside got out unscathed, from my understanding. Now, eventually, the crowd began to calm down, you know, with with the help of reinforcements from cops, the riot squad, the fire department, and the, the crowd dispersed. But people did protest for five days following this. Thousands of people were protesting, especially after the journalist from The Village Voice published his story about his experience during the riots, mm-hmm. what he saw, what he heard, yada, yada. The word started to and get out. The word started to get out. It did escalate a little bit after that. There was like a bit more rioting, yeah. but it's my understanding that most of the protests remained pretty peaceful. Mm-hmm. Like everybody was loud about it and they were marching, but the as far as kind of the violence that you saw that first night didn't didn't really happen. Yeah, I, they were much. making their voices heard. And the crazy thing, what I told you about earlier the program that I was listening to about this incident, uh, one gay couple, the two men actually met each other at this protest, and they're still together today. Aww. So one good thing certainly came of that. That's so cute. Yeah. I love that for them. And shortly after this is when many organizations involving gay rights were formed such as the gay liberation front the human rights campaign i'm actually wearing a human rights campaign t-shirt right now hey cool um glad was formed which is formerly known as gay and lesbian alliance against defamation um p flag was formed which was formerly known as parents families and friends of lesbians and gays Plenty of others, but those are just kind of the big names that a lot of people know still today. Yeah, so lots of grassroots movements started to sprout up after this. Right, right. And on the one-year anniversary of the riots, thousands of people marched in Manhattan from the Stonewall Inn to Central Park, which ended up being America's very first gay pride parade. And the official chant, I love this, the official chant was, Say it loud, gay is proud. Nice. <laughs> I love that yeah. so much. And um, one other fun fact, in 2016, President Barack Obama declared the Stonewall Inn and like the surrounding area a national monument to recognize like the contribution to gay rights. Wow. Pretty cool stuff, especially all, all those years later for a sitting president, because back then... The president was Richard Nixon, and you're damn certain that that wasn't going to happen under his watch. Oh, yeah. He he would never. <laughs> so that concludes the super-duper condensed version of the Stonewall Inn. If you guys want to learn more, there's plenty of information on the internet. I do believe there's a couple documentaries about it as well. Just type Stonewall into Google and head down the rabbit hole.
Hey partners, I'm Denisha. And I'm Dana. And we are the host of the new podcast called Partners in Crime, where we discuss true crime, paranormal, and the weird. Join us on your daily adventures, whether you're working out, driving, chilling with a friend, and if you're brave enough, just before you go to bed. Like, subscribe, leave a review, and check us out. Bye. Bye. Hi everyone, this is Cassie and Wine and True Crime has transformed into True Crime Trophy. I'm bringing you cases straight out the True Crime Trophy cabinet and I need you to help me sort them into gold, silver or bronze. Get in touch with us on our social media and rate, review, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you on the next episode. Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's absolutely free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. So Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a whole lot more. Basically, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and you want to know what else? You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, which is really cool. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So that story wasn't necessarily true crime related like we've done before but I did think that it was really important to talk about it for Pride Month yeah especially because I think that the Stonewall riots were one of the big it was a moment in history it was a moment in history and I think it was a big catalyst for like the movement for what was to come LGBTQ plus today. Absolutely. 100% agree. Yeah. I mean, it sparked the very first gay pride parade. And now we're going to talk a little bit about gay and trans panic defense, because that's a thing. Shouldn't be, but it is. It's still legal yeah. How many states do you think it's still legal in? Oh, man. Out of the 50 states, I would say, I don't know, 15 to 20? 39. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. How is that even possible? Also curious. A handful of states are considering banning the defense. Minnesota is actually, there's a bill out right now, I think, that's being voted on or it's being considered this year mm-hmm. to have that ban- to have that defense banned in Minnesota. I do know that much. I guarantee the state I live in of South Dakota, it's not going to happen for, I don't know, a couple decades. Yeah, you are correct. It is not. South Dakota <laughs> is not on the roster for states considering it. And it is not one of the states that have already banned it. Not surprising. Right. The states that have banned the gay trans panic defense laws, which all of these states approved them in the last six years. Hmm. So that's California, Illinois, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Hawaii, Maine, Nevada, New York, New Jersey, Washington, D.C., Wisconsin, Colorado, Virginia, Oregon, and Vermont. 
All the states that have been considering it in the past like couple of years is Minnesota, Massachusetts, Maryland, Nebraska, Florida, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, and Georgia. Gay homosexual panic disorder. Andy, are you familiar? Uh, I'm not familiar with that terminology, but I can guess where this is leading here. It's actually appeared in the DSM-1 and was included as a type of dissociative disorder that disrupted typical perception and memory functions. Unbelievable. All further volumes of the DSM did not include this because it's not a diagnosable condition, obviously, but it did spark and influence the use of gay and trans panic defense in a court of law, which is often like this defense is totally a scapegoat. Really, it is. And Mm -hmm. this type of defense is generally used when there's no question as to the defendant's guilt, but that due to the, you know, quote unquote, homosexual nature of the crime, they experienced temporary insanity. And most people that use this defense aren't, which this is, I guess, the good news. Most of the time when they use this defense, they're not successful in getting an acquittal, but... They are successful a lot of times in getting a lesser charge or even self-defense. Wow. How gross is that? The fact that that's still even a thing just boggles my mind. Yeah. And this has been used to justify murder nearly 200 times around the country. That's just in the U.S. Yeah. Plenty of other countries, and in, in a lot of countries today, even being gay is illegal. Oh, yeah. If you go to a country like Saudi Arabia or something like that, and you're a homosexual, you're gay, you're in big trouble. Right. It's so... Yeah. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that things don't need to change in this country, because we are still way, way light years behind where we should be. Right. A lot of countries are. Yeah. Even, you know, like Western developed civilized quote unquote countries are still way behind when it comes to like civil rights issues. Yeah. Most westernized countries have only recently legalized gay marriage in the last 15 years or so. Yeah. Now, I just wanted to quick touch on just a couple of cases in which the defendant used the gay trans panic defense many of us have heard of the jenny jones case are you familiar i do remember hearing about that yeah in this a guy named jonathan schmitz was tried for first degree murder of scott amager i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing that right i've heard it pronounced several different ways and i'm still not 100 sure what happened here Scott was basically a guest on the Jenny Jones show. And the idea, like the whole synopsis behind it was that um, he had a secret crush on somebody and they, and that was Jonathan and nobody told him, nobody told Jonathan what was going to happen. I mean, he knew somebody had a secret crush on him, but he had no idea who it was 
or what was going to happen. Right. And a lot of those shows in the 90s used to do that. And Jenny Jones was one of the biggest offenders. And they didn't care about what the ramifications were going to be after this. But there certainly were ramifications after what transpired here. Well, and I'm sure, you know, no, you see prank shows and prank this, that, whatever, all over the Internet. Nobody ever thinks that this is how it's going to end. But, you know, no. any anyway, so Jonathan, after the taping, went and killed Scott just because yeah. he was embarrassed. He was embarrassed. He was angry. Yeah. There was lots of rumors flying around, blah, blah. So he was charged with first degree murder. And by the end of this, he was found guilty of a lesser charge, which was second degree murder. Which is just ridiculous. Yeah. It's so stupid. And, you know, we'll probably cover this case more in depth later on. But if you're familiar with it, he it was 100% premeditated. He walked up it to was. the door, went back to his car, got the gun out of his car, walked back up to the house mm -hmm. and killed him. That's not. Yeah. How is that not? Oh, my God. That's totally premeditated. And by the way, uh, I think the Jenny Jones show has a little culpability here as well. They were l deliberately trying to exploit this. They probably knew that this guy was a homophobe and that he would not react well. And that's why they wanted it to happen, because they wanted good TV ratings. They wanted this to be good TV for them. And boy, did they get it. Yeah, because Scott's family, I believe, even tried to sue yeah. the show and mm -hmm. were unsuccessful. It, yeah, there were years of legal issues with that, I remember. Yeah, which is just ridiculous. But that's a story for another day. Next, I just wanted to touch on the case of Angie Zapata. Have you heard of her? No, that's one I have not heard of. And I hadn't really heard of her either until I was just kind of Googling cases like this. Angie was beaten to death by a guy named Alan Andrade in July of 2008. Now, Alan had learned that Angie was trans. So she had a penis. She smiled at him and said, I'm all woman. And when he found out that, quote unquote, that wasn't true, hmm. he lost it. And by lost it, he killed her. By lost it, he killed her. Yeah. So his defense attorney was using this argument as justification in order to have the charges against him drop to second degree murder instead of first degree. Now, the judge in this case rejected that argument and Alan was sentenced to a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole um, because he was convicted of first degree murder yeah. and the jury only had to deliberate for two hours. And that conviction also included a hate crime endorsement. As it should. As it should. More of these should. I feel like even if, even if, you know, like, like, like in the, case of scott amager he succeeded in having his 
his charges dropped from first degree to second degree. But I firmly believe that that second degree should still have the hate crime endorsement. Absolutely. 100% it should. This case is important because it was the first one to have the hate crime endorsement when the victim was transgender. Yeah, so that was a monumental moment in the judicial system. Absolutely. And then lastly, I just wanted to touch on a case that I'm sure, I know you know about it, Andy. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know about it, but it's the story of Matthew Shepard. Yeah, I remember one of the first documentaries I ever saw on, you know, hate crimes against gays and lesbians was on Matthew Shepard because he died in 1998. He was murdered. And Mm -hmm. it was maybe the year 2000 or so. And I saw it on cable and it really opened my eyes to what the gay, lesbian and trans community has was going through at the time. Because remember, this is 21 years ago. So the landscape was completely different, but it was a very important moment. And he is one of the pioneers. His, his murder signifies one of the steps that led to a lot of moments of further equality for the gay community. Yeah. And I mean, maybe even, maybe even harsher punishment. I mean, I know in a lot of these States you can still get away with that gay panic defense, but like in these States where it's, it's now illegal or you can't use it. Mm -hmm. I mean, these crimes shouldn't be happening to these people to begin with, but when they do, they should be like, you know, the, the, the people who commit these crimes should be punished to the full extent of the law. Yeah. As if it were a heterosexual person. I mean, that's the thing there. There shouldn't be any difference here. But there right. is murder, murder is murder is murder. Is exactly. Murder. And so, th- I mean, this took place in the state of Wyoming, which, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, especially at the time, if you were a gay person in Wyoming, you know, you had a lot to deal with. Now, if you don't know, Matthew Shepard was an openly gay student who attended the University of Wyoming and he was beaten, tortured and left for dead in 1998 and he was eventually found and he died six days after he was attacked and this this attack was brutal they tied yeah. him to a fence mm-hmm. they they, they beat it was a him. barbed wire fence yeah yeah it was that's right awful and if you ever get a chance watch the laramie project you can see that on multiple streaming services just um it, it's an encounter that you need to look into a little bit more and it sheds light onto it. And um, it's fantastic. It it was just so brutal the way they killed him and Mm -hmm. with no regard to human life whatsoever. Yeah. I remember one of, one of the very first true crime podcasts I ever listened to. The episode was about Matthew. Yeah. And I was listening and I had, I had honestly not, heard about him until I was listening to this. Mm-hmm. And when they, and I don't remember what the podcast was called, but they like, they went into pretty gruesome detail about his injuries and what happened. And I like, I was almost crying just yeah. listening to it because mm-hmm. 
oh, it's just, it's just awful. No, even myself, when I first heard about this case as a teenager, I had a visceral reaction. And I was already at that point of being 17 years old, I was open-minded to the gay community and understanding of their beliefs and what they had already gone through and, you know, what they needed to accomplish. But when I saw that, that just took it to a whole other level. Right. Now, the guys who murdered him tried to use the gay panic defense, but the judge rejected it saying that they their intention was to rob him mm-hmm. not to kill him that was just kind of an, an an afterthought like the 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 whole motive was like premeditate premeditated but it was driven just by greed and sheer mm-hmm. violence not the fact that Matthew was gay or he was flirting with them or you know it it, it didn't have anything to do with his sexual orientation and Mm -hmm. the jury did find them not guilty of premeditated murder, but guilty of felony murder. And they did deliberate on the death penalty, but Matthew's parents bless their freaking hearts, but they brokered a deal that ended with them receiving two consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole instead of the death mm. penalty. Yeah. As a as a parent myself, I I honestly don't like if if Matthew had been my child, I don't know, I don't think I could do that. I would want to see the people who tortured and murdered my son yeah. burned at the stake. Salem witch trial style. It's a tough call. And obviously they took the high road there and there's a, every person's different and we're not going to get into the cases for and against the death penalty, but you know, certain people believe that life in prison is actually worse than being executed. So maybe that was the route they were thinking. Probably. Or, you know, I mean, yeah, really who knows, but at the same time, it would be tough. I don't know. Yeah. I, don't I agree know. with you. I don't know. Well, I, I'm so happy that we decided to do this, especially right now for Pride Month. And I don't know. And it's such a pivotal moment. It is in history. And I don't know about you, but it feels like more and more people are coming around during Pride Month. And that's the point of it. Just like Black History Month has been over the last few decades. It's raising mm-hmm. awareness. And Look, there's people out there that are saying, look, they're pushing it down our throats. Why do we have to hear about it so much? Because it's trying to normalize it so it's not a divisive issue anymore. That's the whole point of Pride Month. Right. A lot of these civil rights movements, organizations, Mm -hmm. months, parades, weeks, days. It's yeah, that's what it's that's what it's about equal rights for everybody right does not take does not take away rights from somebody else no it's look here's what they're trying to do they're trying to show to the average person who lives in middle america that this is an okay thing this is something that we can accept 
And this isn't something that's going to threaten you. I know you're not used to it, but it's something we're okay with. And we've been having to deal with this for decades upon decades with so many different groups, whether it was blacks or women or now the LGBTQ plus community. It's just the next evolution of this. And hopefully we can get to a point where it's not such a divisive thing. I know. Really. It's it's so annoying that it still is. Because, I mean, people people act like being gay or trans or, you know, whatever is new. It's not. Right. No. It's been with us since the beginning. And actually, studies show, and this is like scientific research, studies show that in every mammal... So not just people, but every mammal. So you're talking cats, dogs, chimpanzees. There's a certain percentage of each of them that are gay. I would like a gay narwhal, please. (laughs) Right. So that makes you realize that guess what? It is part of the plan. Whatever that plan is, whatever you call that plan, it's part of it. And it's something that should be accepted and embraced, and that's kind of while why we're shedding light on it, Emily and myself, Andy, with a capital A, which is also considered a majuscule. <laughs> Andy, yeah, the majuscule A. Mm-hmm. What are we doing next week? Next week, Emily, we are covering the mass suicide of the Jonestown remote settlement in Guyana that happened in 1978 where a total of 918 people committed suicide all because their cult leader told them to do it. Wild. It is wild. And we're going to get into it next week on Unnatural. Socials? Find us on Instagram, Unnatural Podcast. I have finally started to figure out Twitter a little bit, and I'm using that a lot more at Unnatural Ooh. the Pod. We have a Facebook page, Unnatural, a true crime podcast. You can send us a Gmail, unnaturalthepodcast at gmail.com. We also have a Patreon page set up where you can join us for some ad free episodes, behind the scenes content, bonus episodes, and more. That is patreon.com slash unnatural the pod. And as always, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and if you are an Apple Podcast listener, leave us a super awesome review, please, and thank you.
So the fact that she didn't have the genitalia he was attracted to, that's justification for murdering her. Which is absolutely just absurd. I mean, how many women do you know, straight women, who have been with men and those guys didn't have the genitalia the women were expecting? I mean, come on. And they didn't murder them. What, was that too much? I'm just being honest. I'm having violent flashbacks. I think I'm experiencing PTSD. You know, I've always wanted to swim with a narwhal. And what I want to do with the narwhal is just hold on to its horn while it's pulling like me along at like four knots. Well, sure, you're on the on bottom. Top of it, or bottom. Wait, did I say, did I say that in a sexual way? I didn't mean to. 